The story of Noah and the flood is one of the most famous stories, as you know, in the Bible. But this account of Noah goes beyond just the history of it. It is a historical fact. But it goes beyond history. Why is it a historical fact? Because archaeologists have already found enough proof thereof. It goes, therefore, beyond science, history, and archaeology all the way to theology, the very study of God Himself. That's what this whole entire account is actually about, God. As is every other entire account is <laughs> always about God and who He is. And when we know Him, we have life. Noah is, in fact, a type of Christ. He's a type of the second Adam. And it is interesting to note that Adam was, or Noah was born after Adam died. Noah, a type of the second Adam. There was about a hundred years between, but what's a hundred years between, friends? <clears throat> Especially not back when people were becoming, like they were turning 900 years old. And so here's Adam, the first Adam, he dies, and the typology of the second Adam, Noah, is born. <clears throat> However, Noah, as a type of the second Adam, was an insufficient deliverer and savior of humanity. And the reason is because right after they got off the ark, the very first thing that happened was they sinned. More sin took place, marking the fact that slavery to sin was still very present. There still needed to be a better version of the ark than the one of Noah. A better deliverer needed to come and deliver man from his slavery to sin and help him come alive to be a slave unto righteousness, as the Bible says in the New Testament. <clears throat> so let's look at this uh, Genesis chapter 6, the biblical account of Noah, to see how God puzzled His salvation story together. So let's start with Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, as if it wasn't enough. He adds the word continually. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man. Wow. He, he said He will blot out man, reminiscent of what happens to certain names in the book of life. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. It pains me that I had made them. Not that he was going to, not that he was going to never do it, it's just that it's painful too. Genesis 6 verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence. The Hebrew word for violence there is Hamas. Then Genesis 6 verse 12. Interesting. Then verse 6 verse 12 it says, God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Historians and theologians together have assumed the population on earth at the time to have been between or as much as 100 million people. 
You can imagine that they could have reached that amount because people were living to be almost a thousand years. And and some some families can have up to six children in way less than that. <laughs> imagine having children for almost a thousand years. And so here they are, almost a hundred million people is the population of the earth. And here God speaks to Noah for the first time in verse 13. He says in verse 13, God says to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Then he says this, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Let's pause right there. A few very interesting things about this is that the word ark in Hebrew is actually the word box or the word chest. At the time, there were no oceans, there were no ships. The word ark here is not the same word as ark of the covenant. It is a different word in Hebrew. This word ark that was used when calling Noah to build is used only one other time in all of the Bible, and it is used in Exodus 2, verse 3 through 5, to describe the box baby Moses was put in to float down the Nile to save his life. You see, God used the box to save Moses. Why? So that Moses could save the Israelites. God used a box to save Noah. Why? So that Noah could save the human race. These are types of who Christ came to be. In both cases, the box was a, ref it was a refuge from death to provide a future for a people. In one case, the Israelites. In the other case, the human race. Then he continues in verse uh, 14b. It says, You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Pitch is related in the Hebrew language with the words smear, to smear, like they did the blood on the doorposts. It is interesting that Moses' basket, or rather the box that was, he was placing, was also smeared with the exact same stuff called pitch that, that Noah was told to smear the inside of the ark. Verse 15, this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth... 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. This box is not built for speed, obviously. It was not built for the purpose of being streamlined with the water or with the wind. It was built for one purpose, and that is for safety and stability. Isn't it reassuring to know that our Christ and our Lord came so that we may have that safety and stability. Another interesting thing about these dimensions are that uh, when you come to the 19th century and to our time, our modern time, and uh, the ships that are being built now, the ratios are the same as, that they were, as what they were back then for the ark thousands of years ago. They still build these massive ships for the purpose of stability inside of turbulent waters 
they still build them in the same ratios as God told Noah to do. Engineers will tell you today that the ratio is six to one ratio required for stability in the oceans. Now God, of course, evidently knew what he was talking about when he gave those dimensions to Noah. The ark weighed approximately 15,000 tons. The floor space was approximately 100,000 square feet. Some have calculated it to be about the size of 522 box car, or box cars behind a train. 522 of those. Considering these measurements, <clears throat> it is established or estimated that the ark could carry around 125,000 average-sized animals. Average-sized animal, they, they, they measured it that way because a sheep is average size between an elephant and, and an ant. All right? And so if you take all the animals and you average the size, you find the size of a sheep, it's about the average size, and about 125,000 of them could enter that space that the ark provided. I was waiting for it to be like 144,000 sheep. But hey, it didn't work out. <laughs> also consider the fact that when God gives Noah this command, He gives it to Noah 120 years prior to the first drop falling. So for 120 years, this man was aging, building something nobody thought would ever have a purpose. Building something I'm sure was difficult for him to imagine would ever become purposeful. Yet he remained faithful. Verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark. Finish it to a cubit from the top. God was so very specific. But this is probably that the roof overhangs that box. And just below the roof, there's an opening all the way around, obviously for ventilation. It continues and it says, And set the door of the ark on the inside of it, and you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God tells Noah right here to create one door to the ark. Only one entrance to the ark. Verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. When I read that, I thought, wow, so that means that everything, even those tiny little animals living on the top of Mount Everest, everything on the earth shall perish. Everything in the North Pole, everything in the South Pole, everything in the Himalayas, everything in the Grand Canyon, everything has to perish by water, and so it shall be. Was it really that the whole earth was flooded completely as, as if emerged into water itself? Was it really like that? Well, did you know that sea animal artifacts have been found all over the Grand Canyon? Like, what are fish doing in the Grand Canyon that are supposed to be in the ocean? 
This was a universal flood. The entire earth was covered. And of course, there are so many of those archaeological findings everywhere around the world, even on top of the highest mountains in the world. This was a universal flood. The entire earth was covered with the waters of God's judgment. This was God's judgment on the earth because of man's evil. Man's evil hearts. This universal flood is compared to the end time judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3 where God is going to once again do exactly the same thing, destroy the entire earth and all who are upon it universally, yet this time not with water, but this time He's doing it with fire. So let's go there and, and, and just make sure that this is what it says. 2 Peter 3 verse 3 and 7, it says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days some people will appear whose lives are controlled by their own lusts. Their lives are controlled not by God, not by Scripture, not by the Spirit of God, by their fleshy lusts. That is how they live. They will make fun of you like they did Noah and will ask, he promised to come, didn't he? Where is he? Our ancestors have already died, but everything is still the same as it, is, as it was since the creation of the world. They purposely ignore the fact that long ago God gave a command and the heavens and earth were created. The earth was formed out of water and by water, and it was also by water, the water of the flood, that the old world was destroyed, referring to Noah. So here we are in the New Testament. The apostle Peter is referring back to the flood, to Noah's time. He says, but the heavens and the earth that now exists are being preserved by the same command of God. In order for what? Unto what purpose is it being preserved? In order to be destroyed by fire. They are being kept for the day when godless people will be judged and destroyed. So, first, Peter refers to the fact that the earth was destroyed and everybody upon it with water. But in end times, people will be the same way as they were then, but this time the earth will be destroyed by fire. All right, let's go back to our portion of Scripture in Genesis chapter 6, and let's continue with the next verse, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first time covenant is mentioned. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Isn't it wonderful to see how God is a family God? He's a father. He's a generational God. He saves from generation to generation. He says, he says Noah, build this ark so that you can save yourself and your family. Verse 19, And of every living thing of the flesh... You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds of this, of the birds of, of the birds after their kind, <clears throat> and of the animals after their kind. Of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Do you know that to this day, scientists cannot point to one example where there is a change in kind? You notice? Apparently, we all came <clears throat> from, from animals, and we just changed kind over time. 
There's such a thing as microevolution, where one dog and another dog breeds a third kind of dog, a third breed of dog, but all are the same kind dog. They don't keep on breeding until they start mowing, you know. There's no, they don't breed and breed and breed until they start flying with the, with the fowls of the air. There's no change in kind. There's only micro change in different breeds. <clears throat> but here God in Genesis, Genesis really solves almost all of man's problems, just so you know. But here God specifically points out that you need one or two of each kind in order to continue that kind. Verse 21, as for you, take for yourself some of all food, which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Noah heard the promise, and he obeyed the promise over a very long period of time. So now, <clears throat> let's take a corner and let's look at how this account of Noah and the flood relates to us, you and me, inside of the New Testament and the New Covenant. We start with Matthew 24, verse 3. The Bible says, And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? When is the end of the earth? When is the end of time? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When is this Jesus? What can we look for? What sign ought we to look for in order to know that this is the end of the age? What is the sign? Now, Jesus uses the rest of this chapter, including the ten virgins story. He uses the rest of all of this to explain to them and give them an answer to their question. Here is what to look for and here is what to do. All right? So let's look at Matthew 24, verse 37 through 44. It says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of who? Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and divorcing until the day that Noah entered the ark. This is simply saying this, folks. People will be going about their lives without any concern of a coming judgment. That's what will happen before He comes. Just like the day of Noah, people will have no thought at all that the end was upon them. No thought about it. They'll get married, they'll get divorced, they'll work, they'll buy, they sell, they make lives happen, they build their companies, they make money, they fill the coffers, they, uh, they just continue living as if everything is going to keep on as normal, not knowing that the end was right upon them. Verse 39, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. You see, it didn't say there will be two men laying in a bed. It says they'll be in the field. I just thought I'll mention that. There'll be two men in the field working. One will be taken, one will be left. Verse 41. Two women will be grinding the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. 42. There'll be one. Uh, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 
Could you tell your neighbor, be alert? Stay alert. Stay unoffended. <laughs> Stay thankful. Stay focused. Verse 43. The Bible says it's offense that becomes a stumbling block, right? Verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be what? Ready. For this reason, you must be what? Ready, alert. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. He's coming when? When you think He's not. <laughs> That's no, I think we still have. I know of a prophecy that went out over there in, in California. I heard of a prophecy that went out, which means if this has to still come true, then we still have a lot more time. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work like that. It's when you think it's not here, it's, it'll be. It'll be at an unexpected time. People will be caught off guard. People will be sideswiped. The point Jesus is attempting to make here is that be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready. You see, a man walked down the street in Chicago. And he asked, this is not in the Bible. And he asked the, <laughs> he asked the stranger, do you, know what, uh, do you know what man's two greatest problems are? The stranger replied, I don't know and I don't care. The man said, well, you have both of them. Ignorance and indifference. That's your problem. And that's the world's problem today. They don't know and they don't care. They're ignorant about the will of God, the things of God, and they couldn't care over the fact that they are ignorant. They don't care that they don't know. Over and over, will you hear people say, the biggest problem we have today in the church is biblical illiteracy. Back in the day, I'll give you one example. Jesus was 10 years older than the Apostle Paul. But when he started his ministry at the age of 30, he had a disciple whom he loved. His name was John. He loved John. John wrote the book, the, the gospel according to John. And then later in life, on the Isle of Patmos, he wrote what? The book of Revelation, right? And he was an aged man at the time. But when he started with Jesus, Jesus was a very mature 30-year-old. Would you agree with me? And he took under his wing these disciples and the one the Bible says he loved was John, and John was 17. And then he writes the gospel according to John. And I'm looking at young kids these days, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> Playing video games. What are you doing? These people were so mature at that age that they could actually be used by God to write the gospel according to John at the age of 17 to 19. One of the reasons for them being so educated was because they read a lot. When you read, for instance, Hebrews chapter 11, it actually doesn't explain much. It says now, Moses, by faith, opened the Red Sea. You know, Noah, by faith, built the ark. 
And it just keeps going. It actually doesn't tell the story. That letter was written to a church using one statement to explain an entire book on the Old Testament. Why? Because they actually, he wrote to them the epistle assuming that they understood. They already know all of the, the book. They know it inside out. He didn't have to explain to them, now Noah built this ark because God told He didn't have to rewrite everything because they already knew everything. They were well-versed. They were well-educated. They were literate, biblically literate. And so we, this is, I'm praying and asking God for, for us here to be that. And one of the ways it can happen, bear with me, is that to teach, the word teach comes from a word, tooth. And this tooth, have you ever seen one of those, have you ever gone for, for an x-ray and you see yourself and you go like, that's, that's creepy. Have you seen yourself on an x-ray? <laughs> yeah. I looked at it and I thought, God, how, how interesting is it that, that you, you need both top and bottom teeth in order to accomplish something, right? You can't chew your food. If you only had top teeth, if you only had one tooth, you couldn't accomplish anything until it has something to grind up against. Right? And that's the word teach. And one of the things that I'm somewhat, it's not fun, but I'm pleased over is the fact that if there's, dis, if there's disagreement, like something I may say from stage, and you go like, well, that's not so. Good. That's a good thing. Go and find out if it's not so. Not by turning on the radio, by going to the Bible and say, is that really so? Is that what it says? And how do I figure this out? Over the last couple of months, uh, I think I've driven more people into the Bible than, than I have in years before. Because you have to actually go and figure out. you know. And we have, we have a, a principle, the nobility principle here, where you, you don't have to agree with me, but you have to agree with scriptures. You have to. And so they have to go and receive the word. Those in Berea received the word gladly, and they went and they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And you go and study the scriptures and see if what's said is true. You know, and at best, you're going to get into scriptures. Some people are like, I don't know, and I don't care. So it's really important that we see that this is the temperature of the end times. It is the fact that people are ignorant and people are indifferent. I mean, back in the day, people studied and studied and studied. I'll give you just one example that came to me because I realized people in a previous generation read books. This generation no longer read no nothing. They can't read, and they don't. They send emojis. That's about it. That's my message. Boop. <laughs> That's how they communicate now. <coughs> Tina and I went on vacation. It was either to North Carolina, South Carolina, but there's a house. It's a mansion that was built by one of the first billionaires that ever lived in the United States. Biltmore family. Are you familiar with this? 
or we went to the Biltmore mansions. And just even lo looking it up on the internet yesterday, I see the pictures of it. I'm still, it still takes my breath away. Those gardens, you will not believe it. It is just absolutely out of a storybook. You, you walk into a different world. It is so gigantic. It is massive. It is beautiful. And then when you walk in front of that house, you, you don't realize it's a house. It, it looks like an airport. It's massive. Of course, old, you know. And beautiful. We walk in, you have chandeliers, and you have these staircases. The, everything is, the detail that they took care of is fantastic. If ever you get an opportunity to go to the Biltmore, go there. But here's one thing that just captured me, and I couldn't get past it. That house has hundreds of rooms and hundreds of bathrooms. 150 or something like that. Hundreds of rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. And it had an indoor pool, it had an indoor gym, but this is a couple of hundred years old. So he, he was so far ahead of his time. This guy, the thing that really took me about and, and stayed with me was when we walked into his library. And it said that he read all those books. He had the books he had read, he kept. And that library is about half the size, if not more, than the Schoenberg Library. It is huge. And these books were thick books. But that's what these people used to do. When it's time to retire, they would sit around in the family and they would read. They would educate themselves. They would, become, they would stop being ignorant about stuff. And that's true for all the people in the early church. They were also well educated. I mean, if you read the King James Version, if you read the Bible, you go like, man, this is so well written. Those authors didn't just, their hand didn't just start moving. No, God inspired them and they wrote, right? They were able to master languages. I mean, there's a church father that preached in all three languages. He had only preached from the original. He preached in Hebrew, he preached in Greek, and he preached in Aramaic. And that was not his home language. <laughs> People were so educated. I know Peter Daniels, he reads multiple books in a week. The previous generation are very, very hungry for knowledge and being, they are not ignorant people. And now we get to this generation, and this generation, what they do is flip on the TV. And this is now what we do. We don't read books, we'll listen to something, possibly. So here's my point. This will be the temperature of the end times. The temperature of the end times will be people who are ignorant and wouldn't care that they are. They're buying, they're selling, they're getting married, they're giving, they're giving up marriages. They're living for themselves, they're living for their own purposes. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 through 5, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, uh, without self-control, brutal, and despisers of good. They despise God's good. Traitors, headstrong, 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 headstrong. Can you see that? This is, this is a big deal. I, I'm trying to write like, you know, this is my Bible. I refuse to rise against what it says. 
You know, I'm, try, I'm writing my little, my little statement that I can quote to myself all the time. But that's the one thing that comes to me all the time. I will not rise above what this says. I will refuse to rise above what this says. I will not be headstrong. I will be soft-hearted. I will be humble. I will, give my, I will deny self. And I will agree with what God says. I will not rise above a verse. But here it says, in the last days, they will be headstrong. They will be headstrong. Haughty. That's why they're headstrong. It's because they're filled with pride. Uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll be everywhere in the world but in the work of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And that's the worst one because that's the most deceptive one. A form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. The message spoken to Noah was not easy, folks. And, and uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, by, by faith, Noah. Watch this quick. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Hebrews 11, it starts. God, uh, Noah obeyed God. Or Noah, by faith, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Now, faith is the substance of things not yet seen. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Second Peter 2, verse 5, it says this, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You know, when you start looking through the Bible, now you find when I start studying the flood, I see it everywhere. It's everywhere, all throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Here Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. As we discussed, it took him about a long time to build the ark. They estimate approximately 75 years. And of course, many people during those 75 years would come and see what he was doing and hear what he was saying. Why were they hearing what he was saying? Because he was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. So people came to watch him. People came to listen to him. And today, I'd like us to consider the three things Noah would have been saying. Well, he would be saying what God told him the problem was. Number one, Noah's message to the people was that their thoughts and their deeds were evil before the Lord. I can only see him. He's hammering away. People's thoughts and people's deeds are evil before God. What are you doing? Building an ark, all right? Mind your own business. People's deeds and people's hearts are evil before God. Ow! And then he couldn't say anything. <laughs> right? So you have, you have this guy, Noah, building his box. People are hearing him preaching righteousness. God told me that the thoughts and the deeds of this generation are evil in his sight. And compared to God, you're missing the mark. Now remember that the original sin of man was what? The original sin in the garden is that mankind in themselves could become the judge between what is good and what is evil. 
I'll judge, I'll judge if this is good or evil. God, don't you tell me. We will determine what is good. We will determine what is evil. And that is what it will be like in the end times. People will say, no, this is love. God says, no, it's not. No, it is God. Who are you to tell me this is not love? People will take upon themselves the responsibility of judging good and evil. They'll say, God better do this. Why? Because God is good. Well, how do you know that this is good in God's eyes? Who are you to determine what is good? All I know is God is good. Well, who are you to say that that is good if it's not in scriptures? Well, God is good. Well, what people do is what they want, desire for themselves, they just slap a tag on called good. This is good, therefore God wants me to have it. So they decide good. They determine and define. Listen, all communication rests upon the definitions of terms. We can all talk about good, but when you look to the Middle East, what Israel sees as good, the nations around them don't see as good. <laughs> right? One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so people live redefining terms. And God said, for instance, when he went to the rich young ruler and he said to him, the rich young ruler said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But how did he approach Jesus? He said, good teacher. What did Jesus do? He said, stop it. Don't you tell me who's good and what good is. There's only one good and it's God. And whatever he says, that is what good is. Don't you come and redefine it. I'll tell you what good is. And so in the end times, you'll see the temperature in society would be where people now start taking that seat of judge where they say, no, this is right, that is wrong. This is good, that is evil. I don't care what the Bible says. I tell you. And that's the end time. That is something that you'll see in the end times. The second message Noah would have taught as he preached righteousness was that there was only one way for a man or a woman to be saved. This is becoming increasingly offensive in our day and our age. The third message Noah would have preached as he preached righteousness from what God told him was that God was soon going to judge all of the earth. The problem, though, was, historically speaking, they had never seen God do it. There had never been another flood. As a matter of fact, there, was, there had never been rain. And now suddenly, so where's all this water going to come from, Noah? And they couldn't believe something they hadn't yet experienced. Oh, that'll never happen. Why not? Because I just, it'll never happen. That's what people usually say. So we can only imagine that there were a few different kinds of people around responding to Noah at that time. So we see Noah preaching righteousness, the message that God gave him. These people are evil. Their hearts are evil. Their thoughts are evil. That there's only one way, one way to be saved, and that God was going to judge the earth for those who do not take that one way. But I can only imagine after 120 some years, people coming around Noah, listening to him, that there were different kinds of people inside of the crowd. 
And we want to give them benefit of the doubt today. Is that okay? I want to identify some of these people, and then you and I evaluate our hearts to see if we actually match those profiles or any of them. The first kind was those who just couldn't commit. Let's give some of those living in Noah's day the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they believed to a degree what Noah was saying. Noah was saying, what these people are doing are evil in God's sight. Giving some of the benefit of the doubt, some of them may have said, well, I see your point. There's too much murder going on. People are being raped. People are being, you know, abused. It's not good. I can see that. And they will agree with all the evil that's going on. They'll agree to the fact that it's rampant and that God's possibly not happy about it. But their problem that they were facing was that life was busy. They were, they were getting married. They were given in marriage. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were busy. And they did not expect anything of the sort to happen to them like a flood. So the problem they were facing was that life was busy. Life was demanding, just like it is today. Jesus said that they were getting married, and they were giving in marriage. But the question is, why would they give up such a full life and join such a crazy old guy with such a purpose, purpose, seemingly purposeless mission? Why would they do that? Build this massive box, especially considering the fact that it had never rained, considering the fact that there has never been a flood, there was no history of God ever judging an entire world. Maybe God judged one individual at a time, but never the, the world universally. And there is no sign that things were going to change. Just like life going on from day to day. This is all they could base their decisions on. So we want to give some of them the benefit of the doubt, but we see there was possibly a group of people, even though they agreed somehow, they just couldn't jump in, boots and all, with Noah. In the same way today, many won't engage in serving God wholeheartedly because they are way too deeply rooted in their own temporal goals. They are way too deeply rooted in their own earthly purposes. God's going to have to wait. Instead of being eternally minded, they are temporally minded, short-sighted, and will be sideswiped. They'll be blindsided, just like those in the day of Noah. Number two, there's a second group of people, I think, that came to listen to Noah. Those who possibly would agree with him to a, would agree with him to a degree, but they couldn't handle the ridicule. They simply could not join him and his family in giving their lives to a project that was a joke to the rest of the world. How many people today draw back from giving themselves to God wholeheartedly because they're afraid of being ridiculed? They just don't want to let the world know where they stand. The third group of people that could have seen Noah and listened to Noah are those who put it off for a later date. Imagine with me for a moment how many people would immediately rush to the doors of the churches around this city right here if we were ever attacked and it seemed like there was no chance of your survival. 
The moment people realize that they are being attacked, they run for the church doors. Why do we know this? Because that's exactly what happened during 9-11. The moment they heard that, they, that America was being attacked, you couldn't get into a church. People flooded those churches. People say things like, I'm not really in the church, but I'm close enough. I'm close enough to a church to at least get there when things get real. Can you imagine how many people are outside of the church saying, I really don't, I really don't want to call my lifestyle evil. I don't want to do that. I really don't want to call all of the Word of God good. I really don't want to fully engage with the things of God. I really don't want to be, uh, I really don't want to be single focused in life. I want to be all over the place. I want to keep my options open. I really don't want to be laughed at and ridiculed, but I'll run for the ark when times get tough, when things get real, when the rubber hits the road, when I turn on the news and I see now things are getting rough, I, I will run. I kid you not, this might be funny, but this actually happened, where we were sitting inside of our church before we changed the name to Christ Nation. We were meeting in a hotel. And there was a lightning. It was, we had such heavy weather that Sunday morning. Lightning struck so hard. We thought that our building got struck. But everybody in that area thought that their building got struck. It wasn't five minutes. And a young man ran into the church in his pajamas still. He lived two blocks away. And he darted for church service that morning. Because lightning struck. And I kid you not. It was, it's funny. It's true in that case, but for real, in 911, it is very obvious that that's what people do. And in more than 20 years of full-time ministry, I can tell you, I have seen it. People's lives fall apart and they run to God. When their lives don't fall apart, you can hardly get them to even crack open the Bible to see if what was said was actually scriptural. But then there are those, when hard times fall, they walk away from God and they're angry at Him. So here we see what they did not understand and what they were not prepared for was the suddenness of the judgment day. The thing they did not calculate inside of their equation of life was how suddenly this took place. It's when nobody was expecting it, suddenly it happened. Look at Genesis 7, verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. You know how when you look at the world map, it looks like all of the continents actually could fit together? At that moment... All of the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Water was coming from the belly of the earth, filling these streams called oceans, and water was just falling from the sky. For the first time ever, this happened. Judgment Day did not come gradually. It came suddenly, immediately, in one day. Genesis 
7 verse 15 through 16 says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh which were, which were there was the breadth of life. Let me read that again. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. Verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in and God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut the door. John 10 verse 9. I am the door. I, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Even if people were banging on that door, God had shut the door. And then in the same vein, Jesus goes on and He explains the ten virgins standing in front of the door. He says, I am the door. There is only one. And when it shuts, suddenly, unexpectedly, when nobody thought it would, it shuts. And the door God shuts, no one can open. Isaiah 55, verse 6, I close with this statement, with this verse. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Just close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, thank you.